Amen. Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 30. You find that on page 590 in your pew Bible. We are in a section of Isaiah's prophecy that was likely the message to Judah when Assyria had completed its conquest of the northern kingdom of Israel. I say likely because, as you know by now, the prophecy of Isaiah is a summary of the prophetic ministry of a man who ministered over 50 years, almost 50 years. He started when Israel was still unoccupied by Assyria and Judah was independent in the south, but yet a separate entity from Israel. And then over time, uh, the north takes, is taken captive by the Assyrians, and then the focus turns to the south. And so it's difficult to say for sure which particular part of Assyria's reign this particular message comes. It seems likely that it is right as the Assyrians are on the border of the southern kingdom. They've already taken the, the north. They're ready to try to take Jerusalem, where the temple is. Uh, this would be the ultimate show of their power to take Israel, as people knew of Israel historically. Uh, in the recent times, Israel had been to come to become divided, weren't as, as, as powerful as they used to be. So to really take Israel, though, Assyria would want the temple. They would want Jerusalem. That's for sure. Despite the outward display of trust in God that Judah possessed with the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the prophets, despite all that outwardly, they were behind the scenes, even unbeknownst to many of the citizens, trying to strike a deal for security with Egypt of all places. And we're talking about Egypt, the same Egypt that held them captive for all those years that God used uh, Moses to rescue them out of. That Egypt. And they were tempted to go find security and salvation in Egypt instead of trusting in God's covenant promises to them. And so, chapter 30, God's bringing an expose. He's saying, I know what your plan was. I know what your plan is. I know what you're doing And here is my response. Now, you will notice that he speaks a touch differently to Judah. Now, why is this? Not because Judah was more righteous as such, but God has a covenant that he must maintain. He cannot wipe out his people at this point. Messiah has not come yet. So he keeps his covenant promises now with only two tribes remaining. And from Judah, the tribe of Judah, will come Jesus. So he is going to maintain this nation even while he disciplines them He's going to maintain them and he'll ultimately show himself to be their savior. Here as I read God's word, I will read just a summary of the entire chapter and we'll cover the chapter. So first, verse 1 and verse 2 will give you a flavor for what he is calling them out concerning. Then I'll read verse 15 down to verse 18. All of this is on your outline. This will give us a picture of what this chapter is about. Here as I read God's holy inspired in an errant word. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, 
in who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh, and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Now down to verse 15. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling, and you said, No, we will flee upon horses. Therefore you shall flee away, and we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. Lord, though we read of an episode that happened 2,700 years ago, it illustrates a struggle that we Christians have had in every age. Your way sometimes seems too tough for us. We're so strained, so much adversity, so much tempting us. Too much resistance from the world we sometimes feel. Our flesh gets tired. We want to go back to the way we think things were. Our memories seem to be short. Lord, we look back at our life before Christ and we are sometimes under the strange and deluded notion that it was better or easier. We forget the burden of our sin and the misery that it created. Yet, when the going gets tough, We are tempted to run backwards instead of resting in you and riding out the storm fixed firmly on our cornerstone, Jesus himself. Lord, teach us and strengthen us afresh this morning as we see that despite our fickleness and our tendency to lose hope, our tendency to want to run the other way, you are surely gracious to us. I thank you for this. I lift this prayer in the name of Christ. Amen. If you find yourself tempted to run from God, here is a text for you. Isaiah chapter 30. If you are a believer, but you're struggling with unbelief, and so you've been trying to live life on your own or find your own way out of whatever issue you have found yourself in, here is a text for you. If you're a person who trusts Christ, but find the way too hard, You're looking back at your old life, maybe, and it seems shiny and attractive to you. Here's a text for you. If you think that you've been running too hard and too fast against God and that God won't forgive you, here is a text for you. If you've messed up big time and you know it, you think that God won't forgive you, here is a text for you. There are two key verses that summarize the whole chapter. Verse 15 
and verse 18. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Return, rest, be saved. Verse 18 says, Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. God will surely be gracious to you, even if you answered yes to any of those preliminary questions. He will. He promises this. Now, if you decide to go off and wander, it will be painful. It will be difficult. But he loves you so much that he'll use the pain that you bring upon yourself by estranging yourself. He'll use that pain to draw you back to him. He'll even cultivate your faith through the experience you're having to make you more resilient for the next time that you have a trial or a temptation come your way. This is the dynamic that we see played out with God's people in Isaiah 30. It's a dynamic that repeats itself throughout Scripture, and it's a dynamic that's familiar to many believers. Judah confesses faith in God. They say they're believers. But they show faithlessness trying to strike a deal with the Egyptians, disobeying God's word, not believing his promise not believing God has the capacity to save them. God uses the hardship that they bring upon themselves for this action to ultimately cultivate faith in him. We'll see how it happens as it unfolds. God graciously cultivating the gift of faith, otherwise known as rest or trust or belief. He graciously cultivates this in his children even when we're trying to run from him. Judah seems to manifest a devotion to God outwardly. You would have thought so with the temple complex, the active sacrificial system, the priesthood, the prophets live there. They had it going outwardly. It was distinct from the other nations. Yet, underneath it, they didn't believe what they were professing in their rituals because they were trying to strike a deal with, of all people, the Egyptians. Very simply, we see first in the first 14 verses, the first half of this chapter, Judah showing an unwillingness to believe and obey God's gracious word to them. And that brings them hardship. Hardship that God uses, though, ultimately, to bring them to a deeper faith in him. Chapter 29 reveals this secret plot that Judah's leaders were concocting with Egypt, but more and more it comes to light as we open these verses in chapter 30. Follow. Chapter 1, or verse 1. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt, without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. What an affront to God. I mean, God had given them so much over the centuries. The promise of maintaining them, keeping them secure, 
yet they were secretly striking a deal with, of all nations, Egypt. They were cheating on God, and they were being exposed. The prophets now bring to public light what had been going on behind the scenes. This had not been known widespread. Now it's become, become known. Several years ago, I don't know if the show's still on because I've repented of watching it a long time ago, but there's a show called Cheaters, and it was a low-budget but high-in-reality TV, high TV drama. It wasn't like the produced reality shows they have today, where you know it's mostly they're just acting with, they're setting up situations and then real people react to them. This was just real raw, and it was like this guy, kind of a creepy guy, who seemed scorned at some point in his life, and he was bent on finding cheaters out. And so these desperate people would come and say, I think that my partner is cheating on me. On me. So this guy, you know, going to help him get a couple cameramen, and they would follow the, the person's partner for a week, and they would film him, you know, at restaurants or wherever they would find this person who was saying on their phone that they had to work late or they had to do this or do that, covering for this affair they would have. And so this would go on uh, for a whole week, and they would bring back the footage to the person on a little camera, and they'd show the person and say, look, I think, yes, you have a problem. Look at what your partner's doing. And, and then it would culminate with, you know what? Right now, they're at a restaurant. You want to go see him? And then the guy would get in a car, and he'd bring him, and they'd open up this black Suburban, and they'd open the doors, and they'd pop out and pile into to, you know, uh, Applebee's or something, and they would make a huge scene in the, in the, in the restaurant and the person would be exposed and embarrassed sitting there with the person who was, who was, their, uh, was the other part of their affair. And it was just creepy to watch. It's like, yet you couldn't turn away either at the same time. You're like, how's this going to work out? Well, there's a sense in which Israel's been going through this outward motion like they were married to God. They've got the temple. They've got the sacrificial system. To be a priest, you had to go through all these rituals and rites, and everything looked outwardly like they had it together with God. But in the end, what it turned out to be was a total ruse. Behind the scenes, they were working a deal. And this is like the cheater's guy putting the light on them. I know what's up. I know what you're doing. I know what you're doing. You carry out a plan, but it's not mine. You make an alliance, but not of my spirit. Verse 3. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. That security that you're trying to find in Pharaoh will end up shaming you, because he'll be able to do nothing for you. The Assyrians will not be put off by the Egyptians, nor will the Egyptians even have any force to help you with. Verse 4. For though his officials are at zone and his envoys reach Haines, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them. The Egyptians had sent their envoys to come meet with the envoys from Judah to strike up a deal, a deal that would cost Judah money so they would agree to defend the Judahites against Assyria. Verse 5, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. And what's the big deal with Egypt of all nations anyways? Well, first of all, you recall in the Old Testament, when God was giving the promised land to the Israelites, he was moving the Canaanites out. And the Canaanites who previously occupied the land, 
they had shifted uh, occupying that land among different city-states that were very nomadic. And they were called the Canaanites in general, but there were many people groups. They had detestable, detestable practices. Everything from human sacrifice uh, to things that can't even be mentioned that they were doing. God was bringing their time to a close and simply used Israel to bring judgment upon them. Now, we know by now God's equal opportunity when it comes to justice. So Israel will suffer their own consequences for sin. But Israel was used to rid Canaan of those people. And they were supposed to rid of all the nations because the nations would bring their practices into the lives of God's people if they didn't do it. Now, you know what happens. They don't follow God's instruction wholeheartedly. They leave many of the people there. And over time, the seeds of those detestable acts and devotions, they start to grow and God's people suffer for it, just like God predicted. Now, that's general about the nations. But Egypt in particular, I mean, think about Egypt and the role that Egypt played in the life of God's people. In Exodus chapter 13, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although it was near. In other words, back in the time of the Exodus, 700 years before this, when Pharaoh finally relented and the people were let go, God could have taken them a closer way by the Philistines, but they would have had to fight immediately. Instead, he takes them towards the way of the Red Sea, which is longer, but it allows him to manifest his provision for them, his deliverance, supernaturally, and it keeps them moving towards the promised land. Because listen to what it says in Exodus 13. God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although it was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Now what would it have been like for Israel if they would have gone right back to Egypt after all those plagues? But they would have thought that would be better than to keep going in the direction God sent them. In Deuteronomy later, when Moses is writing by God's direction uh, the law and especially the stipulations for how Israel would live as the people of God, only he must not acquire many horses for himself, talking about whoever the king of Israel would be. He must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. That's the way of slavery. That's the way of abuse. That's a way of no identity. No way to show yourself as the people of God and the light to the world. Don't go back that way. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. All things both Israel in the north and Judah in the south, were guilty of violating. They had not needed a new word from God about alliances with Egypt. They only needed to obey the word they had. Egypt was dangerous for its old and established pagan culture and the influence it could have had on a struggling and culturally deprived people like the Hebrews would have been devastating. They had nothing but negative remembrance of what Egypt was in their nation's life. Apparently, 
Judah had already sent envoys with money to strike a deal with Egypt. Look at verse 6. An oracle on the beasts of the Negeb through a land of trouble and anguish from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder, which is a snake, and the flying fiery serpent. They carry riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. So he's speaking of this journey they would have taken, the envoys with the money to meet the Egyptian envoys to pay them off. And that the treachery that they would have to pass through to do this act. So they were willing to engage in that treachery, that difficulty, rather than trust God. They're willing to go through this toil because they believed in their own wisdom more that Egypt would offer them more. That going through this trial, this difficult country, and through this process is a wiser thing than doing what God said. Verse 7. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore I have called her Rahab who sits still. Not Rahab who helps them. Not Rahab who helps save them or show them the way or preserve them, but Rahab who does nothing. Total deadbeats. You're going to give them all this and Egypt's help is worthless and empty. All this sneaking around, all this conniving for what? Egypt would have no ability to help Judah against Assyria. Verse 8. And now, go write it before them on a tablet and ascribe it in a book that it may be for the time, for time, to, the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to tell... Do not prophesy to us what is right. Now notice what he's saying. Remember the seers and the prophets were referred to as blind in chapter 29? Now we have the people saying to the seers, that is they have special sight given by God like prophets, the people say to them, even if you can't see, don't see. We don't want you to tell us the truth. The people are telling the teachers, don't tell us the truth. And the prophets, to the prophets, they say, do not prophesy to us what is right. It doesn't just sound like 2016. Speak to us smooth things. We didn't come to church to have you make us feel bad. Speak to us smooth things or don't speak at all. Prophesy Illusions, it says in chapter 10. Leave the way. Turn aside from the, from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. We're going to do it the way we want to do it. We're going to run away. We're going to find our own saviors. We don't need this message any longer. This is what we're going to do. And you leaders don't tell us otherwise. Either tell us what we want to hear or don't tell us anything at all. Well, they will not only fail to get help from Egypt, the very thing they are so afraid of will start to happen as Assyria breaches the borders and threatens to take them the same way they took the north. Verse 12, Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, 
because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. And its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up uh, water out of a cistern. There'll be nothing even left to be useful of you. Okay, we know what Egypt is for Judah. What's Egypt for you? I mean, what is that thing that you know God doesn't want you to have or to do, but you got to have it and you got to do it anyways? Or the thing you look back upon and said, you know, I was happy back when, or life was easier back then doing this with that person, or whatever it would be. What from your past is tempting you again? What has God freed you from, but now it calls to you? Is it a substance? Is it a sinful action? Is it a sinful relationship? Something that you knew it was a rescue when you came out of it. There's no question in your mind. For the majority of your life, you've known it was. But there's something happening right now that's got you weakened, and you're thinking back, and you know what? It was better in Egypt. Maybe I can get what I need in Egypt. Maybe Egypt can help. Even though Egypt's never done anything for you, Egypt's only ever tried to enslave you, Egypt's only abused you, Egypt's only ever used you for its own gain, that's all it ever has done, you somehow think at this moment that Egypt might be better. He will surely be gracious to you. He will. He promised that he will. Now, you may decide to go wander, and it will be a painful, painful wandering, as you see unfolding here. But God loves you so much as his child that he'll use the pain that you're bringing upon yourself in your striving and in your restlessness to draw you back to him. He'll even cultivate, grow your faith, your trust, your rest in him as you exhaust yourself in rebellion. This is the very dynamic that we see played out with God's people in Isaiah 30 as Judah confesses faith in God but shows faithlessness by trying to strike a deal with the Egyptians for protection against the Assyrians. I love what the commentator John Oswald says. All your human conniving cannot save you. Your only resource is God. And the good news is, is that he wants to save you. Indeed, he will. So why go to Egypt? He'll let us go down to Egypt, only to find there's nothing there for us in great pain. But why go in the first place? Because he wants to save you. He will save you. Well, God's discipline is actually his gracious hand working to cultivate true faith in his children. We see it here. A common feature of the Old Testament is teaching a spiritual or an ultimate reality through a temporary circumstance. We see it over and over again. I mean, the Exodus itself, the original Exodus out of Egypt, was a picture of spiritual deliverance out of sin. The mediator Moses led the people of God out of slavery. The true mediator Jesus leads the people of God out of slavery to sin. It's a picture. It's a real event with real salvation occurring 
picturing a greater salvation with a greatest, the greatest Savior. So this is a common kind of language use you hear, salvation or rest or believe. Judah finds herself in a harrowing, life-threatening circumstance. It's an immediate trial for them. Assyria threatens. And certainly God cares about their trial, but he cares more about their ultimate existence. So he, he will use their temporary trial to teach an eternal truth. Verse 15. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. The picture of their restlessness or their running or their striving to find salvation for themselves. He says, in returning to him and rest, you shall be saved. Stop the striving. Stop the running. Stop the restlessness. Rest in him and you will be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. God speaks to them through the lens of their immediate trial. And he speaks to them something of something more ultimate. Return. Rest. Be saved. So through their difficult circumstances, God builds their faith in him as they get tired and worn out running from him. But do they heed his call in verse 15? Well, the last four words tell us this has been an ongoing call on the part of the prophet. Verse 15, the last part, but you were unwilling. You said no. We will flee. We won't rest. We'll flee. We'll flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. And they say further, we will Ride upon swift steeds. Remember that he just said, return, rest, be saved, in quietness. No! We'll flee on horses. We'll ride away on swift steeds. Well, God says, therefore, verse 15, or verse 16, therefore, your pursuers shall be swift. You think you're fast and you're running, but you're not. You can't, out, you can't out, outrun God's agency. Verse 17, a thousand shall flee at the threat of one. At the threat of five you shall flee till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. You're all alone now. Instead of returning, instead of resting and being saved, they resisted, they ran, and they were reduced to nothing. Brothers and sisters, is God calling you today? Do not ignore his voice. Are you running? Are you resisting? Are you striving? You're saying, no, I'm going to go. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to do what it is that I plan to do or what I'm into now. I'm in too deep. I'm going to do this. Thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. He says it to you. In returning and rest, you will be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. The emphasis changes. Now when we come to verse 18, 
It changes from the faithlessness of Judah to the faithfulness of God in totality. The faithfulness of God to his covenant promises. It's a greater force than all the wayward rebellion of his people. God's not some kind of stooge who just stands by while they disobey and he does nothing. No, they had the work of his discipline in their life. But where you find God's discipline, you then find his grace. Verse 18. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. You can just imagine the restlessness, the running, and here's God waiting for you to stop. What's he waiting to do? To be gracious to you. What does he want to do when you stop running? Give you grace. What does he want to do when you stop your rebellion? Love you. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are those who wait for him. I get this question often. It's a great great question. If God did not improve himself at all by creating man or creating anything, why did he do it? Why did he stay in eternal union, the triune God, stay among the, the persons of the Trinity for all eternity would not have needed to create us to be bettered. And that's true. He did not better himself by creating us. But he did reveal something that perhaps could not have been revealed in any other way. I think it's in verse 18. He exalts himself to show mercy to you. God manifests his gracious mercy in a way that perhaps could not have been displayed in any other way but to create. And then for the fall. And then for redemption. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Once events have run their course, and Judah sees the emptiness of Egypt's power, once you have run the course of whatever your rebellion is, and you realize the thing you were striving after won't help you, it will not give you what you thought it would give, you will find that God is graciously waiting for you to just stop. The Lord waits. Are you waiting on God's grace with trust and rest, or is God waiting on you? He was waiting for Judah to stop running other places for what they needed. Now, the genius of God's sovereignty is, as he's waiting, he's causing the just reward for what they were doing to point them back to him. So even in the discipline, he brings them back to come to him where he's waiting. He knows better than just let us go. We won't come. We'll go to our destruction first. The Lord waits for you. The Lord waits with his grace to lavish it upon you. Eventually the people would be forced to stop their conniving and turn to the only place where help could be found. Verse 19. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you, the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. He won't let you cry for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, a half hour, an hour. He won't ignore. As soon as he hears you cry, he'll be gracious to you. God prompts repentance by our experiencing the results of our sinful choices. And he will answer when we cry. The hardships will be seen clearly for what they are, the lessons of a loving teacher. Look at verse 20. And though the Lord give, give you the bread of adversity, 
and the water of affliction. Yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore, but your eyes shall see your teacher. You'll know why it's so. You'll understand why it's so. Verse 21, And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Then, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. See, once you stop striving and rebelling and running away, and you rest in him, you'll be able to hear his voice as he speaks to you through his word, and your idols will be seen for what they are, and you'll say, be gone. I don't want to go to Egypt and get what they say they have. Be gone. I have God. I have my Savior. There will be hardship and difficulty before there is peace and there is rest. For Judah, because of their running to Egypt, there will be an immediate consequence as Assyria invades or tries to invade. But God is gracious to them. He allows for them to encroach a bit for that hardship to be felt, but then he brings swift deliverance to them. We'll see that unfold. But look at how he describes this to come. Verse 23. And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground, and bread, the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous, In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures. And the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with a shovel and a fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill will be brooks running with water. See, there's no bread from adversity. There's no difficult water attaining any longer. Once you rest, he's going to give these things. Moreover, where the brooks will be running with water, and in that day of the great slaughter, when the towers fall, moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days. In the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. So the Assyrians will come in, they will have their way for a bit, but then God on the day of great slaughter will wipe out the Assyrians and the people of God will see their God in full display and he'll bind up his people in their brokenness. He'll heal heal their wounds that were inflicted by his blow. And then we have this beautiful picture of the holiness of God on full display through the salvation of his people by defeating their enemies. Verse 27, behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger, and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury, and his tongue is like a devouring fire. By the way, if you're in any kind of duress, would you go to Egypt, or would you go to this God? This God. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction, and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. The fate of the enemies of God 
are uttered with words that are hard to speak, why would you go to Egypt for anything? You shall have a song, as in the night when a holy feast is kept, the gladness of heart, as when one sets out to the sound of the flute, to go, go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard, and the descending blow of his arm to be seen. In furious anger and a flame of devouring fire, with a cloudburst and a storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod. And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres. Battling with brandished arm, he will fight with them. For a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready. Its pyre made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. We don't need to go to Egypt. And we don't need to run from God. He's the only one powerful enough to face your enemies. God is not your enemy. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. There was a parent who took his son who was struggling to breathe and had hives all over his body. He took him to the doctor for treatment after a terrible allergic reaction to something that he ate. He was ushered into the room, the emergency room, and the child saw a nurse come in with a couple other nurses and a huge syringe. And all that child thought was needle. And the child was a a young teen, not a small child, and immediately began flailing violently, would not let the nurse get close with the shot, the shot that the child needed so he could breathe. A real struggle ensued as the child would not stop to stay still. Even the father couldn't grab hold of them well enough, and the nurses weren't able to without being very dangerous. The child was irrationally convinced in the moment that the shot's pain would be worse than the hives and the hampered breathing that he was experiencing. So he fought the cure. Well, the nurse, being wise, very experienced, saw the crazy struggle. She shut the door and locked it and sat down in a chair and just waited for the boy to tire out. And eventually, being tired and his breathing getting slower and slower, he couldn't move any longer. She subtly, but swiftly, came over, administered the shot immediately, and within seconds, it began to do its healing work, and he was healed. You see the picture. Stop flailing. Stop fighting. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself 
to show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for anyone, anyone who's a runner this day. They're effectively running to Egypt for help out of the mess that they find themselves. And Lord, if Judah, they were at church every Sunday, but they were doing something else on Monday with the Egyptians. So just because we're here on Sunday, Lord, I know many of us could be running. Lord, tire us with our running. Wear us out with our running. So that we might rest in you. Give us repentance to run in your direction and rest in your arms this day. Because you have said, as the Holy One of Israel, that in returning and in rest we will be saved in quietness and in trust. We will be strengthened. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.